This ADN Politics Podcast is brought to you by Steam.Coffee, where we source, roast, and present the finest coffees possible. From the Anchorage Daily News, this is ADN Politics, a podcast navigating Alaska's changing and sometimes wild political landscape. I'm your host, Elizabeth Harbaugh. Not that anyone in Alaska needs reminding, with all the campaign ads, texts, flyers, and signs everywhere you look, but Election Day is less than a week away. A lot has gone down over the past few months in the races for U.S. House, U.S. Senate, the governor's office, the legislature, and more. But today, we want to look ahead and help break down what voters can expect in the days and hours before the polls close. To help us do that, I'm joined by ADN politics reporters Iris Samuels and Sean McGuire. Iris and Sean, thank you both for being here. It's good to be here. Thanks very much. I want to start off with a pretty open-ended question, and that is, with just a few days to go and with all the different races up and down the ballot, what's most interesting to you both? And Iris, why don't you go first? Yeah, I think in the statewide races, there are some pretty interesting dynamics in the home stretch. And maybe we can start with the governor's race. There, there are two candidates that are really focusing on trying to unseat Republican incumbent Mike Dunleavy. And that is former Governor Bill Walker and Democratic former legislator Les Guerra. Both of them are very eager to win this race, but they've teamed up and they've actually produced a joint ad that is kind of pointing out how both of them are opposed to Don Levy and hold similar positions. At the same time, they're really trying to tell voters why to rank them first, but they're also telling voters, if you're not ranking me first, rank the other candidate second. So that's a development that we're seeing come to the fore in the last week in the governor's race. What about the congressional races? So in the congressional races, I'm seeing some interesting dynamics, particularly in the U.S. House race. Democrat Mary Peltola is really honing her message and trying to attract middle-of-the-road voters. She has produced ads kind of showcasing how she is carrying on the legacy of Don Young, who was a Republican. She's also highlighting that she has no intention to do away with Second Amendment rights. That's become an interesting development in recent days. And then on the other side of things, we have the two Republicans in the race, Nick Begich and former Governor Sarah Palin, both finally on board with this message of ranking the red, which means if you're ranking me first, rank the other candidate second. And both of them have spent more time than in the past kind of attacking the Democrat in the race, Mary Peltola, and not talking so much about the negative things they see in each other. What are the statewide candidates doing, Iris, in these last few days with the clock ticking down? How are they spending their time? They're really using this time to talk to their most loyal supporters and reminding those people to get out the vote, remind their friends and family to vote as well. So at this point, I think most of the candidates recognize that most voters have decided who they're going to vote for at this point. And so it's really about 
who turns out and who votes on or before Election Day. So we're seeing Mary Peltola open a campaign office in the Mountain View neighborhood of Anchorage. That's an area where she's likely to see a lot of support, but also a place that historically has had a pretty low voter turnout. So we're seeing her really emphasize the importance of getting out the vote in places where she thinks she can get a lot of support. And we're seeing that also with some of the Republican candidates in the race. For example, Nick Begich held an event in Eagle River, a place that he called the conservative heart of Anchorage. And again, he's using these last few days to talk to people that he knows already support him and reminding those people to vote and get their friends and family to vote as well. Then we have some candidates doing some pretty unorthodox things. We have Sarah Palin leaving the state. She's left the state several times before during this campaign, and now she's in New York City, apparently. She went to a Knicks basketball game with her boyfriend. So some candidates are really taking an unorthodox approach to these last few days before Election Day. Governor Mike Dunleavy, for example, he has appeared to take a pretty backseat approach to campaigning. He has not really held any formal campaign events Throughout this campaign, he's really said that he's just too focused on being governor to run for another term. And in recent days, he has traveled to western Alaska to an area that was affected by a storm last month to supposedly check on what is happening in these communities. But his official office didn't really make any announcement about that until after the fact. So we're really seeing him blend his official duties with um, what might be seen as campaign activities. Okay, Sean, turning to you, what, what is getting your attention right now? So what's interesting to me is that there really are just a handful of legislative races we can see that seem to be key for determining whether the Republican Party or bipartisan coalitions will form majorities in the House or Senate. It looks like the Senate might be more likely to have a bipartisan coalition. And we're already hearing about some horse trading going on behind the scenes with some legislators and legislative candidates already talking about how these caucuses might form. So there are a few races in Anchorage and a couple in Fairbanks that we're going to be really watching closely. And those are the races where you see a lot of money being put into, a lot of energy being put into those races. And it looks like those ones are really going to determine what the House and Senate look like uh, coming into January. So, Sean, remind us what's at stake with these caucuses that might form. So the importance of that is it determines what sort of legislation is able to pass onto the governor's office. So if there's a Republican-led majority in the House and Senate, we'd expect more conservative bills passing, whereas if we see bipartisan coalitions, we'd expect more progressive legislation. So that's really going to be important for what sort of bills are passing, what sort of budget we see, what sort of dividend we might see. So these handful of races in Anchorage and Fairbanks could really be key for what Alaska looks like over the next couple of years. And Sean, from where you sit, have you seen any surges in campaign donations or spending in this final stretch? So we have seen moderate legislative candidates and progressives have a sizable fundraising advantage. A week out, it looked like that was basically continuing uh, as it had been uh, since the primary. Interestingly, we have seen a surge of Uh, independent expenditure funding for the Americans for Prosperity. This is a right-wing free market advocacy group 
we saw a $198,000 donation to that group. So you'd expect that to be boosting some right-leaning candidates. I reached out to that group. I didn't hear back from from them where that money's going to go, but I think it's pretty safe to assume it would be boosting candidates on the right side of the political spectrum. And you've also been tracking the Constitutional Convention and fundraising there. What does that look like? So there's a huge disparity between the yes and the no side. So Defend Our Constitution, which is the group advocating against the Constitutional Convention, they raised $4.7 million one week out from the election and had spent $4 million. The yes side, Convention Yes, had raised $60,000 and had spent just over $40,000. So we're talking a huge disparity in fundraising between the no and the yes sides on that pivotal question. Iris, turning to you with the statewide races, is there anything notable in campaign spending happening there? We are seeing millions pouring into the congressional races, but really that is not out of the ordinary. And those races are not close to breaking records for Alaska congressional races. Where it's really getting interesting is on the governor's side. This year is the first year after Alaska did away with its campaign contribution limits. Alaska used to have pretty strict limits. It used to be that an individual could only give a candidate up to $500 in a given year. But a court decision followed by inaction by the legislature left Alaska without limits whatsoever. So this year will definitely break records in the governor's race in terms of how much each individual candidate is raising. And just for example, we've seen just days before the election, Bill Walker got $200,000 from a couple in Texas that has been supporting his campaign for a while. Walker is definitely not the only candidate in that race that has gotten six-figure donations. But again, that's a pretty big difference from previous years. Sean, I want to turn to you and ask about a few interesting recent developments in some Anchorage legislative races that are worth noting. There's a legal challenge in a West Anchorage House race that was filed, and then there's a cease and desist letter in a separate House race on the other side of town. Uh, Can you just talk us through those? In West Anchorage, a lawsuit has been filed against Democrat Jenny Armstrong, and there are questions over her eligibility to hold office. The Alaska Landmine, a political website, reported based on her Instagram post, that it looks like she may have moved to Alaska in June of 2019. And that would be within three years of filing for office. The Constitution requires that you have been an Alaska resident for over three years before filing for office. So there's been this lawsuit filed. Armstrong has said she moved here in May of 2019, which would make her eligible. And we're likely only going to find out what happens with this after the election. She's heavily favoured to win her race. So we're going to have to see what happens with that race. That approach of dealing with this after the election is actually similar to what we've seen with Representative David Eastman, who's having his own eligibility lawsuit over his membership of the Oath Keepers, this far-right militia group. So it could be both legislative candidates only find out whether they are going to Juno long after the election. The uh, judge in the Eastman case decided to delay certification of that race until December That's what this lawsuit against Armstrong is also seeking to do. So I'll have to see what happens there. In terms of the cease and desist letter, in northeast Anchorage, there is a House seat. This is one of the pivotal races between Republican Stanley Wright and Democrat Ted Eyscheid. Wright works for the Bronson administration in the Anchorage Health Department and deals with housing and urban development issues and has been part of some homelessness 
uh, coordination meetings. The iShide campaign has linked his work with homelessness to what we've seen in Centennial Park, which is a big issue in Northeast Anchorage. So Wright sent a cease and desist letter to iShide saying that that was not appropriate and there was a threat of legal action. iShide, though, went to social media and said he wasn't going to stop. He said, basically, you're part of the Bronze administration. Why are you trying to distance yourself from what the administration there is doing? Again, we'll have to see what happens there. It could just be a case of political gamesmanship in the last week of the election. And I think it's worth talking about this political gamesmanship because it could have pretty significant implications. And it's really just about these broader questions that are pervading this election. In the Armstrong race, for example, that's a seat that was seen as pretty reliably one that would go to a Democrat. But if eventually she is ruled ineligible to hold that seat, then Democrats will lose a seat that they thought that they had in the bag. And that could affect the prospects of a possible bipartisan coalition in the House. So that's where that side of things is interesting. Then this other race is interesting because this is seen as one of those pivotal races that could impact, again, whether or not we see a bipartisan coalition. So this gamesmanship, all of these different tactics that candidates are using, whether it's using the legal system to try to poke at candidates or any other tactics that candidates are using, really when it comes down to the wire and when candidates know that the winner could be determined by just a handful of votes, anything like this could end up impacting the race. Got it. So this is the state's first full general election under the new ranked choice system. It's not a first time doing this because there's a special election in August, but also it's still a pretty novel process. Sean, what can voters expect in terms of when results are going to come out and and why is that? So we know that polls are going to close at 8 p.m. on Election Day, November 8th, and we're expecting the first set of results to be released just after 9 o'clock, and there'll be counting going on for the rest of that night. But we're only going to learn the first choice results on that first election night. So they're going to be incomplete results. We're also not going to see absentee ballots get counted. You might remember a couple of years ago, this was an issue when 40% of voters cast ballots by mail during the height of the pandemic. It's going to be a week later that those ballots are going to be counted. We know that there's strong numbers when it comes to absentee voting this time around. So that could be a factor in some of these tight races. But the ranked choice voting is really going to be a key factor in these bigger statewide races we're expecting um, because we've got more than two candidates. We're not expecting them to get a majority uh, in first choice votes, we're expecting it to have to go to second, maybe even third choice votes in some instances. So we're going to see the ranked choice voting tabulation process actually 15 days after the election, November 23rd, which is the day before Thanksgiving. The Division of Elections decided they wanted all the ballots to come in before doing that tabulation process, and absentee ballots can come from overseas up to 15 days after the election. So earlier in the week, we heard from the Division of Elections that the ranked choice voting tabulation process will happen on November 23rd, the day before Thanksgiving at 4 p.m. So you might remember in August, that process was filmed on a cell phone. It was a little blurry hard to watch. It went very quickly and was a little difficult to watch remotely. This time it's going to be broadcast live with professional cameras, KTOO, the Juno radio and media station is going to be there helping out. 
They're going to film the process starting at 4 p.m. And we're going to see that ranked choice voting tabulation process happen. And hopefully it's going to be a lot more clear than it was back in August. We were told by Gail Fanumiai, the director of elections, that she's just going to go through those races one by one, do the process. It's going to be fast. And we're going to get results about these big races, uh, we expect, and we'll get to find out who wins. So that's going to be a really big day. 4 p.m., November 23rd, day before Thanksgiving, when everyone's getting ready for uh, Turkey Day, we're going to find out who is going to be in office in a lot of these big races. But what about Election Day? Will we know any of the results on Election Night? Well, the Division of Elections would like to remind us that results are not officially known until they're certified, which is expected to happen November 29th. That's when the review boards and everything do their work to make sure that all the votes are counted properly, all the processes worked. So that's one point we need to remember. When the Associated Press calls races, it's only a projection. But because of this ranked choice voting, these bigger races, no, we're probably not going to see definitive results or even projections of results. But for the Constitutional Convention question, we might see results because that is an up or down vote. There's no ranked choice voting involved in that. So if there's strong numbers one way or the other, we might be able to say even with absentee ballots coming in, the yes or the no side is going to win. In some of these legislative races, if there's two or fewer candidates, it's going to be pretty similar to how we've seen election results in the past. So a lot of these races, we are going to probably be able to say, yes, this candidate has won, this candidate looks likely to win. And it could be that we also have to then wait for these absentee ballots to come in for these really tight races when there are just two candidates. Because as we've seen in Alaska, historically, races can come down to just a handful of votes or even famously a coin toss. Well, that's a good note to take a quick break. When we're back, we're going to talk about election security, turnout, and more. At Steam.Coffee, we're proud to support great journalism and we're proud of our pursuit of great coffee. We search the world for the finest raw materials and then roast them to perfection at our Anchorage headquarters. All with one thing in mind, the finest coffee possible in your cup. Come visit us at either of our Anchorage cafes or online at steamdot.com. We're back talking to Iris Samuels and Sean McGuire about what to expect in the final few days before the election. Iris, I'm going to start with you here. You've reported there are going to be federal observers at polling places here in Alaska this election. Why is that? So to understand why there are federal observers coming to Alaska, we have to go back to a lawsuit that was filed in 2013 by Alaska Native voters who speak Yupik. What they alleged was that the state was not providing these federally required accommodations for them to get instruction on how to vote and voting materials in Yupik. And what was found in this trial back in 2014 was that the state was, in fact, violating the Voting Rights Act. So ultimately, there was a settlement agreement. Part of that agreement was that there would be these federal observers that would come and check in on the Alaska Division of Elections to make sure that they were providing materials, election materials, to speakers of Alaska Native languages where those are needed. And that's based on census data that indicates that there are a lot of, say, Yupik speakers in a particular region. 
So back in August, there were federal observers that came to check in on the special U.S. House election, and they found that the state is in fact still violating potentially the Voting Rights Act in not providing materials where it is required in UPIC. So they'll be back in November. We're not sure which exact polling places they'll be visiting. But again, they'll be here to check to make sure that the Division of Elections is providing those election materials and translators where they are required to do so for non-English speaking voters. Is there any assurance that these observers are going to make a difference, though? It sounds like the problem's been dragging on. Yes, it has been dragging on. In fact, the agreement was supposed to end a couple years ago, but it was extended because the observers kept finding that the Division of Elections wasn't meeting these requirements. What we've heard is that the Division of Elections is really trying its best. There's no malicious intent here, but it's very, very difficult in some cases to find translators who are bilingual and are able to provide some of this assistance that's required. So it's definitely not guaranteed that these observers can make a difference. But really what they're there to do is essentially motivate the division of elections to follow the law. So while we're speaking about concerns at polling places, Sean, nationally, there are a lot of concerns about election security and even voter intimidation that courts have weighed in on in other states. Are we seeing anything like that in Alaska? We spoke to the Division of Elections and Lieutenant Governor yesterday, and they made clear that there have not been reports of anything like that in Alaska. There have not been accounts of violence or threats of violence against poll workers in the lead up to this election. And for Numi, Gail for Numi, the elections director was saying she was hoping and praying that would continue until the election is certified at the end of November. Have you been hearing about anything in your own independent reporting besides the division of elections? Uh, no, haven't heard anything like that. Iris, I'm curious, there are also candidates on a national level who are saying they don't trust election systems. They might challenge the results. This is a continuation of what former President Trump started in the last presidential election. Is there any of that happening in Alaska? And I'm thinking in particular of candidates that Trump has endorsed. We've looked into this particularly with the two candidates that have aligned themselves most closely with Trump. That is U.S. House candidate Sarah Palin and U.S. Senate candidate Kelly Shabaka. So Palin, before the August election, we were wondering, just given the fact that she has cast a lot of doubt on this new ranked choice voting system, has said that it's really bad for the state, we were wondering if she would then challenge the results. But she was pretty clear that she would accept the results even if they didn't go her way. And that is, in fact, what happened, even though she didn't win and it was a pretty close race, she at no point made any indication that she intended to challenge those results or even ask for a recount. So we expect that to happen this time around as well. We don't expect her to try to challenge the results. In terms of what Shabaka has said, she has not been unequivocal about just accepting the results as they come in. She has said that she will accept them as long as there aren't major issues. As we learned from Trump, major issues can be found whether they are fabricated or not by people that are looking for them. 
So something to watch there after results come in. Iris, during the primary this year, something else to note is there were some pretty alarming levels of ballots being rejected, particularly in districts in rural Alaska. Do we know if the Division of Elections has taken steps to keep that from happening again? So we saw a lot of ballots were rejected back in June when the state held a special primary, and that was the state's first primarily by mail election. So most voters back then voted by mail. That will not be the case this time around. But back then, what we saw was a lot of ballots were rejected, particularly in regions of the state where English is not the primary language spoken. And a lot of those ballots were rejected because certain requirements weren't met, like having a witness signature on the ballot. So since then, the ACLU has filed a lawsuit against the Division of Elections for not having a ballot curing process. That would be a process that would allow voters to correct their ballot if there is any issue with it before Election Day so that it is counted. The state's response to this concern is essentially to say, yes, we agree there could be a ballot curing process and that would be helpful, but that is really up to the legislature to determine we can't make that rule. They have to make that rule for us. So at this point, really nothing has changed in terms of the types of conditions that led to that really high ballot rejection rate that we saw back in June. But again, this election is not going to be a primarily by mail election, so we won't see that high number of ballots rejected. And we're seeing some campaigns adapt to this problem that they saw back in June. So in particular, I spoke with someone from Mary Paltola's campaign who said that they're really not encouraging voters to vote by mail. They're encouraging them to vote in person if possible just to make sure that their ballots are counted. Sean, I want to turn to you now and ask about turnout. Between early and absentee votings, are there any indications or data on whether this is going to be a big year for voters casting ballots here in Alaska? So far, we can say that absentee and early voting looks strong, similar to 2018 numbers. It's far less than what we saw in 2020 when, uh, as I mentioned, 40% of voters cast ballots by mail, but that was obviously a very specific situation in that COVID cases were soaring and it was pre-vaccine and a lot of people were concerned about uh, voting in person, being around a lot of people. It's hard to say where we're going to be in terms of other midterm years. Uh, We'll have to wait and see what happens after election day. I'm guessing that's going to be where we're going to see most Alaskans casting a ballot. I want to take a final stab at the issues here. In earlier episodes, we've talked about issues that have been at the center of some of these statewide campaigns, which includes abortion access, the economy. Uh, Iris, I'm curious, in the statewide races, has that shifted at all? We're still seeing candidates talk about these same issues, the economy, abortion access, and it really depends which side of the political map you're coming from. And so we're seeing across the country, candidates on the right side of the political map are talking more about the economy. They see talking about inflation as something that will motivate their supporters. And then we see people on the left side of the political map talking about preserving abortion access and that being something that will motivate their supporters. So Alaska is really in line with some of these national questions on this. Um, And really, the question now becomes, which of these issues will be more top of mind for voters come election day? So at this point, it's been 
a few months since the Supreme Court decision that did away with federal protections for abortion access. So some people might be wondering if that issue is less top of mind for some voters. Then on the other hand, you still have very high prices for some consumer goods, for gas. And so when voters go to vote on or before election day, it'll really be a question of did they have to pay a lot of money to fill up their gas tank that morning? And will they be thinking about that at the voting booth? Sean, anything you might add about what candidates are pushing on these last couple of days before the election? Schools, I think, is definitely a really big topic for left of center candidates. You've seen Walker, Gara, a lot of legislative candidates talking about that, particularly when we're hearing more and more about what's going on in Anchorage with these school closures on the horizon, potentially, and programs being cut. That definitely seems to be something they're really pushing. And then we're also hearing a lot about needing to get Alaska producing more in terms of oil. With these high gas prices, we're hearing a lot of right of centre candidates talking about that, about getting more oil flowing through taps and frustration with the Biden administration's policies, which are seen as hamstringing Alaska's resource development. So let's wrap up here. And I know we said at the beginning we weren't going to predict the outcome of any races here, but... How much or how little should we take from the results of the August primary elections? For example, in those primaries, Governor Dunleavy was looking pretty strong, as was Lisa Murkowski, and Mary Peltola obviously won the special election. And so I'm wondering, and Iris, maybe we start with you first, are political observers you're talking to thinking the cycle is going to be a repeat of that one, or are they thinking that things have changed? So it's important to remember that in August, voter turnout was around 35 percent. And that was pretty high for an August election, but we are essentially guaranteed to have significantly higher turnout in the November election, which just means that the electorate, the people voting this time around, are going to be different. There's going to be way more of them. And so it really depends on who you talk to. Political observers on the left side of the political map will say that this electorate is going to be more left of center or maybe just even more moderate. It's going to be less partisan. It's going to be people who maybe didn't care enough to vote in August, but now they're tuned in and they want to vote for a particular candidate. People on the right side of the political map will say, well, actually, Alaska is a red state, so more voters means more red voters. So really, it's a question of who you talk to. And it's important to remember that this is the first year that Alaska is under this new voting system. That means a new primary system and a new general election system. So in the primary this year, unlike in previous years, it was not a partisan primary. Anyone could vote for any candidate. So it's really hard to compare the type of people that voted in the primary this year to the type of people that voted in previous primaries. And then in the general election with ranked choice voting, again, it's really hard to tell. We've had one go around at this point. Mary Peltola won. Some people might say, oh, that means this favors left-leaning candidates or moderate candidates, but it remains to be seen really when we have way more candidates on the ballot, how this shakes out. Sean, do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I think Iris is right. And I think a big question is going to be, we saw in August that Peltola won, despite there being two Republicans in the race and more Republican-leaning voters casting ballots. So the question is, 
are voters going to take that rank the red message to heart? Are we going to see a change in tactics? Is there going to be a change in results? That really is going to be an open question. So it's likely going to be until that day before Thanksgiving before we find out definitive results for these big statewide races. Sean, I'll let you wrap us up here. Any last advice for voters? So remember, for voters who haven't cast a ballot yet, polls open at 7 a.m. on election day, close at 8 p.m. If you're in line at 8 p.m., stay in line. You can still vote. If you're voting by mail, make sure you get your ballot back as soon as you can. They have to be postmarked on or before election day to be counted. And the division says to make sure they are counted, get them in the mail ASAP and Make sure you go vote. Make sure you have your say in Alaska's political process because, as we've seen time and time again, it can be one or two votes that decide critical races and the future of Alaska. Well, Iris and Sean, thank you both so much for being here, and we will be following up with you both after November 8th. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to ADN Politics. You can subscribe to the show in whichever podcast app you're listening to right now. You can keep up with the rest of our coverage on ADN.com. And you can subscribe to ADN there, which is the best way to support our work, including this show. Thanks to our guests today, ADN Politics reporters Iris Samuels and Sean McGuire. This episode was produced with help from Zachariah Hughes and Evan Phillips. Our music is by Evan Phillips. David Hewlin is our editor. And I'm your host, Elizabeth Harbaugh. See you next week. Thanks for listening. This episode of ADN Politics was brought to you by Steam.Coffee, where we source roast, and present the finest coffees possible.